Well, you know, for many years, uh, we have celebrated the Advent season together, and uh, oftentimes, as we light the candles, I've focused in with you on the themes that those candles represent, the, the gifts of God given to us in Christ, the coming of Christ, the gifts of hope, peace, love, and joy. But honestly, I've done that so many times now that I felt like, okay, I think we need to do something different. I think for this Advent season, I want to seek a a, a new direction, something fresh from God that would be helpful to us in refocusing our attention on Jesus. And so uh, as I prayed about that and thought about the options, um, considered some different ideas, I felt like the Lord uh, really drew my attention to this passage from Isaiah chapter 9, and particularly to the names that are given to Jesus in this passage. There are four titles that he's given, and uh, they're familiar perhaps to many of you if you've heard this passage before, or if you've ever heard uh, Handel's Messiah. You know, last night, actually, my parents were at the Messiah, uh, presentation of it in Grand Rapids. Um, I myself have heard it sung on many occasions and even sang in it on a few occasions back in the day when I was younger. And I want to just highlight for you something uh, remarkable about the story of Handel's Messiah that connects with this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. For many years, Frederick Handel traveled the European countryside composing and sharing his operas with the world. He was an opera writer. In fact, he'd written 42 operas. And he was extremely competent, of course, with his music. Uh, But historians tell us that uh, Handel was quite incompetent with his money. And as a result, uh, he found himself in in 1737, at the age of 52 years old, which is about my age, facing uh, a destitute situation in life. Uh, The incalculable financial loss and stress of the management side of his career had taken such a toll on him that he actually suffered a severe stroke at 52 years old. And it caused him temporary paralysis in his right arm and actually blurred his vision. As a result, he decided it was time for a change of focus And he gave up on opera and decided to turn his attention to something different. This uh, began as a discouraging decision, but it soon gave way to what would become the most encouraging moment and opportunity of his life. Handel set his talent toward writing choral pieces that were known as oratorios. And this was a career move. Uh, out of which the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, would be born a few years later. An oratorio, if you're not familiar with that term, means oratory or teaching by music. And so these choral pieces were originally designed actually to teach people the story of Jesus uh, because they were often illiterate, did not have access to the Bible, and if they did have a Bible, couldn't read it. So Handel's idea in writing the Messiah was to present the story of Christ for the benefit of people who could not read it themselves. Bibles were so rare and expensive that few people could afford them. And of those who could afford them, fewer still 
were sufficiently educated to be able to read them. So to overcome all of these obstacles, composers like Handel would uh, set the great stories and truths of Scripture to music so that men and women of any age could forever learn God's Word. And what's really remarkable, I think, about this story is that it was 1741. That's a good long time ago. If you're doing the math, uh, 1841, 1941, not quite 300 years, but approaching 300 years. 300 years ago that Handel penned the Messiah. And uh, as the story goes, um, he was moved by the writings of another author, a man named Charles Jennings, uh, who had composed some lyrics for an oratorio but had not yet set them to music. So Handel, inspired by those lyrics, began writing and Within 24 days, which is a remarkably short period of time, uh, he completed the entire score for the Messiah. And uh, one of the stories that's told about the writing of the Messiah, although it's unsubstantiated, I don't know if it could ever be proven, but I don't doubt that it's perhaps true. Uh, One of the stories told was that an assistant of Handel's walked into the room where he was writing after shouting to him for some time with no response, like, hello, are you there? Are you there? Hello? No response. Finally, the assistant opened the door and walked in and found the conductor sobbing uncontrollably on the floor. Sobbing uncontrollably. And when asked what was wrong, Handel held up the score to the music, particularly the Alleluia Chorus, and he said... I think I've just seen the face of God. Nobody will know whether that's absolutely true. But you can't deny or doubt that the music is inspired, if you've ever heard it. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to one song. It's about the 12th or so song in the first section of music that's typically performed Uh, as part of the oratorio. It's a song called, For Unto Us a Child is Born. And it's taken directly, directly from our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. I remember singing the words to this song uh, when I was in the chapel choir at Hope College many, many years ago. And I can hear it. I can still hear it even as I think about the title and as I read this text from Isaiah chapter 9, I hear the melody of that song in my mind. And maybe some of you do too. I see Deej over here kind of mouthing the words. Um, So let's think about the words of Isaiah 9, this declaration that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And if the music runs through your mind while I talk this morning, that's okay. Maybe that will help you think about what I have to share. I want to just kind of lay out for you right from the outset the heart of what I want to communicate. What we're going to do over the next four weeks is drill down into each of the four titles that were given to Jesus through this prophetic vision that came to Isaiah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. 
And, you know, as we think this morning about the title, Wonderful Counselor, the name, Wonderful Counselor, I'm not sure what ideas or images come to mind for you, but I want you to consider this. This is the heartbeat of where we're going this morning. No challenge that life brings our way is too great to face with Jesus as our wonderful counselor. Is he your wonderful counselor? And what does that mean to you? What does that title represent? How does Jesus serve that role for us? You know, uh, many of us are challenged by the situations that life brings our way. I heard a story just a few days ago. I was at a fundraising dinner banquet for the Church of Greater Lansing Network. And a good friend of mine, many of you know him, uh, Pastor Sean Holland, was sharing a story at the end of the evening about a recent experience that he'd had. He is a chaplain for the United Nations. And he recently had an opportunity to travel uh, to the UN facility in New York and uh, in his role as chaplain to meet with a variety of representatives, including some ambassadors from other nations. And he recalled a particular encounter with one ambassador from a nation. He didn't name the nation, but said that it was a large nation uh, across the pond somewhere. And he, Sean talked about how he was uh, conversing with this ambassador, and Sean was talking about hope, the hope of knowing Christ. And the ambassador looked at him and asked him, is there really hope for the future? And that ambassador went on to share with Sean personally how burdened he was by the challenges that he's facing. He says, we have refugees at the border that we cannot feed and we cannot clothe and more and more coming all the time. And each day, my time is spent trying to arrange accommodations and, and uh, you know, for the necessities of these people to be met, the needs of these people to be met. And then I return home to my palace in the evening and just fall on the floor exhausted. That's a picture of a person who needs to know that Jesus offers hope. And, frankly, the picture of a person, a picture of a person who needs counsel, needs wisdom, needs direction, needs guidance from somebody who can see the challenge and respond in the best possible way. So I want you to think about what it means for Jesus to be considered our wonderful counselor. Let me begin with just a, a little bit of background information this morning about the prophet Isaiah, because I think it's helpful when you look at a passage like this to understand the context in which it was written. So here's uh, the first insight I want to put before you, really, 700 years ago. Think about that. If Handel's Messiah seems old, written almost 300 years ago, it was 700 years before Jesus was born. That's like 2,700 years ago from our time. 700 years before it happened that the prophet Isaiah received a vision. And it was a vision from God of the future messianic age that Jesus' birth would usher in. I don't know uh, if you've ever thought about this, but imagine that you could put on a pair of glasses and see into the future. 
Some of you wear glasses just so you can see more clearly what's right in front of your face. But imagine that there were some special kind of glasses available by which you could actually see into the future. In one sense, that's a bit like how prophecy works. It's what happens when God opens the eyes of a man or a woman and gives them a vision of the future as God sees it. And so this passage then, Isaiah 9, is one of several prophetic pictures that Isaiah offers us of the coming Messiah and the messianic age that he would bring, the presence of God's kingdom on earth. And I think what's particularly insightful and inspiring about this passage from Isaiah is how it speaks to the identity and the ministry of Jesus, particularly in these four distinct names or titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of all the names and titles of Jesus, these are among the most memorable because they were assigned to him 700 years before he was even born. So these four names are going to be the focus of our attention over the next four weeks during this Advent season. Now, uh, just a little bit more here about the nature of prophecy to help you understand, again, the context in which Isaiah delivered these words. As you may know, a a prophet was and, and still is a person gifted by the Spirit of God to speak on God's behalf, to deliver a message from God to God's people. And so these men and women do not speak their own opinions Those who are gifted as prophets and called as prophets, as Isaiah was, um, they speak as the Holy Spirit moves them along. This is what uh, Peter, how Peter, the Apostle Peter, described the gift of prophecy, referring back to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. He said, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God revealed his word and his will to the prophets in several ways, but principally he did this by dreams and visions. Dreams and visions. In fact, as Isaiah 1.1 indicates, the whole book of Isaiah is really a vision or a series of visions that were collected and communicated over the reign of four kings of Judah and over the course of about 40 years' time during the last half of the 8th century B.C. So Isaiah was active in prophetic ministry from about 740 to 700 B.C. And here's what we read in the very first verse, the introduction of his prophetic message and vision. Isaiah 1.1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah the kings of Judah. This era of Isaiah's ministry was a critical time in Judah's history. Again, just a little bit of historical background that will help you understand the context in which these words were given. The power of the Assyrian kingdom was rising at that time, and in light of this fact, there were two different groups or factions within the nation of Judah. One that sought alliance with Egypt and the other that sought alliance with Syria. And against each one of them, Isaiah forbade human alliances and basically urged the nation to trust in God 
for salvation instead of looking to its neighbors. So of all the major and minor prophets whose words make up the pages of the Bible's Old Testament, what's fascinating is that Isaiah is routinely recognized and considered to be the greatest, the greatest prophet of all. For Isaiah, more than most prophets, was blessed with divinely inspired visions of the future, future events, especially regarding the salvation of God's people and the coming Messiah who would make that salvation possible. So here's the real key then to reading a prophetic passage like the one that we're looking at. Maybe as I read that text earlier, you notice that it seems to be written in the present tense. It seems as if Isaiah is writing about something that he's seeing right here, right now, even though it was 700 years before the events actually took place. What you, what you might want to remember about this is that Isaiah described scenes that he was seeing in his mind as visions. And when you think about it in that context, you can perhaps more easily understand the language that he uses, how he describes things the way that he does. Isaiah essentially painted a word picture describing the scene that he saw in his mind as revealed to him by God. And in describing what he saw, he used the present tense, even though he saw some things that were far off in the distant future. So events of his time appeared close or even touching occurrences that were separated by centuries, things that were off into the distant future. And if I can give you an analogy to think about this that I think might be a helpful way to, to consider it, Think about the effect of looking at a painting where you have the foreground and the background. In the foreground, you might see some hills that are meant to be re relatively close to where you are, where your perspective is. And then in the distant background, you might see some mountains that are perhaps faded and at a, a far greater distance than whatever lies in the foreground of the picture. Now, if you were actually in that space that's depicted in a painting like this, there would be a lot of things between the hills and the mountains represented in the picture. You wouldn't see all of them. There would be all sorts of valleys and other things that are invisible to the eye from that particular perspective. And so it might look at that perspective as if the mountains in the distance are close to the hills in the foreground. I offer you that because that's, in a sense, the way that Isaiah's vision appears to us as we read what he wrote. There are some things he's describing that were present and happening at the very time in which he wrote, and other things that he was describing that were far off in the distant future. And yet all of it he describes as if it's present to him in that moment. So those distant mountains then, seen only in the dim, hazy outline, are the hope of Messiah, the coming of Messiah, the salvation of God offered in the birth of Jesus. For Isaiah's mind in his visions always came to rest on the future hope of the promised Messiah. There was one uh, particular commentator that wrote of Isaiah Never has there been another prophet like him 
who stood with his head in the clouds and his feet on solid earth, with his heart in the things of eternity and his mouth and his hands in the things of time, with his spirit in the eternal counsel of God and his body in the very definite moment of history. So that describes for you a bit of the paradox of Isaiah's experience. And what this means for us then is that Isaiah had a unique and special gift for seeing into the distant future and describing it with a sense of urgency, with a sense of immediacy, with a sense of present fulfillment. So while he actually wrote 700 years before Jesus arrived on the scene of human history, Isaiah saw it as if it was already happening. And that's how he describes it. So that then sets the stage for these indelible words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. In short, what these prophetic words foretold was the birth of a baby who would become a great king over God's people in the lineage of David, and who would usher in an age of shalom that would never end. Never. So what is there then to these names that Isaiah gives us? These titles by which the baby to come would be recognized and respected. Well, let's press into this first one, Wonderful Counselor wonderful counselor. And really two things I want to highlight for you about this title, because I think to be a good counselor, to be a wonderful counselor, requires two essential characteristics, compassion and wisdom. So we're going to think for a few moments together this morning about the compassion and wisdom of Jesus and how it is that they make him and define him as wonderful counselor. When Isaiah says, his name shall be called, the idea here is not that these are literally his names, like the name Jesus or Yeshua. The idea is that these are aspects of his character, the Messiah's character, that describe who he is and what he would come to do. So, of course, his given name is Jesus or Yeshua, as the Hebrew people would pronounce it. But these names that Isaiah gives us are a representation of Jesus' unique God-given ministry. He ministers to us as the wonderful counselor. Speaking of these titles, John Calvin once said, uh, this ought to be more carefully considered because the greater part of men are satisfied with his mere name, and they do not observe his power and energy, though that ought to be chiefly regarded. So that's what we're trying to do here this morning, and for the next couple of weeks, I want to I regard these names with a new and deeper appreciation and adoration for the ministry of Jesus in our lives. To be the wonderful counselor, of course, um, means that you have to be more than a good counselor, more than an average counselor, more than an okay counselor, right? Jesus is described here by Isaiah as the wonderful 
counselor. Wonderful is one of those superlative terms uh, by way of comparison with other things that tells us this is something special. This is standout. This is first-rate quality. And so when you hear the word wonderful, you should be filled with a sense of wonder. Wonder. When's the last time you were filled with a sense of wonder at something? Jesus is a man full of wonders. Full of them. So you can never really, you know, look at Jesus and think about Jesus and and be bored. It's just not appropriate. He's a man full of wonders to behold. He is wonderful in every regard, but particularly, Isaiah says, he is a wonderful counselor. So what does it take to be a counselor? What does that word represent? Well, that Jesus is counselor means that he's fit and qualified to guide our lives and to be for us an immediate resource in times of trouble. Anybody ever seen a counselor before and willing to admit it? Sometimes, amen, sometimes we need the help of an outsider's perspective on the challenges that we face in life. Sometimes we find ourselves in over our heads and we are, um, we are challenged to the core with the situation that we find ourselves in. Life throws us a curveball and we don't know how to swing and hit that ball. We need outside perspective. We need help. We need counsel from somebody who's good and godly. But to do that, to serve as a counselor, any person has to be able to to connect with the one who seeks their counsel by offering compassion and wisdom. Let me just put it this way. You can't be a wonderful counselor if you don't have compassion for the people that you're working with or wisdom to offer them. To be a wonderful counselor necessitates both compassion and wisdom. So that Jesus' counselor means then that he is able to help us in our times of need. And let's talk specifically then about the compassion that enables him to do that. You see, it's the compassion and kindness of Jesus that makes his counsel sweet. I'll share another quote with you from a well-known Christian preacher and author. This is Charles Spurgeon. And listen to his description of the sweetness of Jesus' counsel. He wrote, Christian, do you know what sweet counsel is? You've gone to your master in the day of trouble, and in the secret of your chamber, you've poured out your heart before him. You've laid your case before him with all of its difficulties, as Hezekiah did with Rabshakeh's letter. And you felt that though Christ was not there in flesh and blood, yet he was there in the spirit, and he counseled you. You felt that his was counsel that came from the very heart. But he was something even better than that. There was such a sweetness coming with his counsel, such a radiance of love, such a fullness of fellowship that you said, 
Oh, that I were in trouble every day if I might have such sweet counsel as this. Let me, now, that's why I want to share this quote with you. I want to kind of catch your attention here a minute. Imagine beholding the compassion of Jesus, the wonder of what a great counselor Jesus is, beholding that reality so much that you thought to yourself, man, I wish I had problems every day. I need more problems so that I can go to the wonderful counselor and receive what only he has to offer me. Oh, that I were in trouble every day if I might have such sweet counsel as this. Christ is the counselor whom I desire to consult every hour, and I would that I could sit in his secret chamber all day and all night long. That's the heart of Charles Spurgeon. So it's the kindness and compassion of Jesus then that makes his counsel sweet. It's because he has a heart for his people, for us. You know, I remember some time ago uh, in a conference session hearing a speaker talk about the meaning of the word compassion. And they were talking particularly about the Hebrew word for compassion, which is the word rachamim. Rachamim, it's a kind of a guttural sound. It sounds like it's coming from somewhere deep within you. And that's appropriate because that's where compassion is meant to come from. And he went on to explain to us in this conference that that, that, that word, rachamim, in Hebrew, literally describes, literally describes and references the feelings that a pregnant mother has for the baby in their womb. That's compassion. Compassion, the compassion of God for his children is like that. It's a heart that breaks with the hearts of others' brokenness. It's a heart that's tender and caring. A heart that's open and responsive. I remember the words of Matthew 9, 36. Matthew here is writing about the ministry of Jesus in its early days. And he says this. It's a remarkable statement, really, about the character of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe you've felt that way at times, harassed and helpless, in need of good counsel, in need of compassion. There's another description that's similar uh, from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. And here he's describing both the Father and the Son he writes uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You see, that's what compassion accomplishes. When you meet a counselor with compassion, you receive comfort by way of their compassion. Comfort is what results from the expression of compassion in another person. There's a great illustration 
of this, and it's really wrapped up in the life of someone that you perhaps have heard of by the name Anne Landers. Anybody remember her? Uh, she passed away uh, back in 2002, so it's been some time you know, since you've probably seen or read anything that she wrote. But um, Anne Landers was just her, her pseudoname. It was her, um, her pen name, if you will. Her real name was Epi Letterer. Epi Letterer. And uh, she actually wrote newspaper columns for 46 years answering people's questions and responding to people's problems with compassion and wisdom. Um, she spent 31 years at the Sun-Times of Chicago before moving across the street to the Tribune in 1987. And over that time, over the course of those uh, 46 years of writing Dear Anne response letters in the newspaper, one biographer estimates that the column's daily intake of letters averaged 2,000 letters a day. 2,000 letters a day written to Ann Landers. Now, of course, she couldn't answer all of them. But thankfully, with each one that she did answer, there were hundreds of people that felt like that letter captured their problem as well. So imagine this is your job. How would you survive? How would you respond? How could you possibly seek to help thousands of people over the course of 46 years? Well, what Epi came to understand was the importance of compassion and caring. She had a, a keen wit. Every now and then she was pretty comical in what she would write to people, but she herself would say that the most important thing in her job was to connect with people using compassion. Questions posed in the daily avalanche of letters resonated for other people around the country whose problems were not all that different. But she responded to each person as if she was present right there with them. There's a biography that was written by her editor who oversaw her responses for, for many years and uh, just writes um, glowingly about the respect that she had for each person that she responded to personally. Describing the challenge and the joy of her job, she wrote, the fact that my column has been a success underscores for me, at the very least, the central tragedy of our society. The loneliness, the insecurity, the fear that bedevils, cripples, and paralyzes so many of us. It was with compassion that she was able to respond to those needs so effectively. So think about that as an example then and multiply it. If Epi Letterer was able to receive 2,000 letters a day, again, not that she responded to each one personally, how many prayers do you suppose rise up to the throne of Jesus Christ on a daily basis? How many people are crying out to him for counsel? How many people are looking to him for compassion? And are you one of them? Do you recognize that that's what Jesus has to offer you? 
Now, compassion is great. It's powerful to have someone who cares, who empathizes with your struggles, who can sit and listen well and not judge you because of what you're going through. But add compassion, add to compassion wisdom, and you've got the whole package. You've got a great counselor, a wonderful counselor. And so as our wonderful counselor, Jesus is also full of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom. When you need a counselor, don't you want one with great wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make difficult choices. It's the, the God awareness, the self-awareness, and an awareness of others that, uh, that's needed in a given situation, particularly in a challenging situation. When you don't know what to do, you need wisdom. And who's the wisest man that ever lived? Be careful, this is a trick question. You might think, because the Bible says at one point that it was Solomon. Perhaps, if you know your biblical history, your mind went right to Solomon. Oh, yeah, the greatest, the wisest man who ever lived. And it's true, in a sense. Solomon sought wisdom from God, was offered one gift, and that's the one he chose, and he received it. And I think we might all agree that he demonstrated incredible wisdom, perhaps with the exception of how many wives he kept. But nevertheless, he was an incredibly wise man. People came from all over the world to seek the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, listen to this. Listen to what Jesus said about himself. And I don't think he said it with a shred of arrogance or pride. Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now... Someone greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus was talking about himself as someone greater than Solomon. And the gospel accounts, it shouldn't surprise you to learn, tell us repeatedly about the wisdom of Jesus. Let me give you just a, a few quick examples here. Luke 2.40 He's, at this point, just a young boy um, growing into, uh, you know, through childhood. Luke writes, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. When you like to have one of those kids in your family, if you're a parent. Luke 2.40, 2.52, just a little bit later in the same chapter. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Then when he began to teach publicly, his wisdom became even more evident. So he had wisdom, and it was evident already during his childhood. But then when he began to teach, it became visible, tangible, evident. Matthew 13, 54, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Where did this man get this wisdom? On some occasions, of course, people would question the wisdom of Jesus, doubt the wisdom of Jesus. One of those occasions was when he was found to be hanging out with those that had problems. 
the troublemakers. And so he's accused by people of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, drunkards and gluttons. You know how he responded? Listen to this, Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus, in his wisdom, knew that the best people for him to spend time with were people with problems who needed wisdom. Those who think they have enough wisdom will not seek the wisdom of Jesus as they should. So, that's all good, but... um, Let me take it to another level. I mean, you can think about Jesus as a wise man, able to give good counsel to anyone who might come his way. But there's something at work here that we have to appreciate and understand. To get the fullness of this, we have to understand that Jesus was operating in the wisdom of God, not just the wisdom of Ann Landers or some other wise person. Jesus was operating in the wisdom of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Similarly, Paul wrote these words in Colossians 2, 2 and 3, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Did you catch that last line? In whom, in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Have you ever thought about Jesus that way? Maybe this is a good reminder. But this is amazing. What Paul's describing is amazing. If you'll stop and think about it, meditate on it a little. He's saying, Jesus wasn't just a wise man. Jesus personifies the wisdom of God. He personifies the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, Paul says. And in him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Is there anyone better you could go to if you need counsel? So listen, listen closely. This is not some abstract, irrelevant insight about a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. What we're talking about is Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, who now sits enthroned at the right hand of God and rules over the kingdom of God. He's still alive, and he's still in the the wisdom provision business. He's still available to those who seek his counsel. He's the same, the Bible says, yesterday, today, and forever. 
So he still has the wisdom to handle whatever tough challenge or difficult decision you can throw at him. And that brings me then to a simple way to wrap this up and wind this down. I want you to understand, friends, whatever challenge you're facing, whatever challenge, no matter how big it seems, no matter how intimidating it is, if you seek the wonderful counselor for comfort and guidance, you will be blessed. You will receive. Jesus is eager to help you. Eager to help. You know, uh, maybe some of you remember the old comic strip, this, uh, the Peanuts comic strip, where Lucy, right, is in her booth, the psych- psychiatric help booth, psychiatric help, five cents, and Charlie Brown would always come to her for help, and um, the help was never worth the five cents that he offered. It was always sort of self-directed and, um, you know, lots of great comics wrapped up in that theme. One of my favorites actually is represented in this picture, uh, the next one right here. Psychiatric help, five cents, the doctor is in. Friendly advice, two cents, the friendly advisor is in. A little uh, competition going on there. Well, here's the good news. Jesus' advice and counsel is free. The only thing it will cost you is the time to come to him in prayer, pour out your heart, and listen. Absolutely free. You don't have to pay him anything. He is available to help. He is our wonderful counselor. Let's pray.